0: Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast, the place to learn field-tested, no BS tactics to growth hack your online business, and finally, live life on your own terms.
1: Now, your host, Gael and Mark. Hey guys, welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast. Today, I am not just with Mark, but I'm with Perrin as well. So uh, I don't know if you're, you're not really a guest here, Perrin, you're just... You're just hanging out, basically. How's it going? Part of the scenery. Yeah,
2: I don't. I I don't get treated like a guest for sure.
1: (laughs) Exactly. How's it going? Uh, You didn't say you. How's it going, everybody? So I just, I just feel like it would be missing if you didn't say that on the podcast. So go ahead. I'm so
2: sorry. I'll have to do it next time.
1: All right. Sure. And we got Mark here as well. How's it going, Mark? Fantastic. Amazing. Let's get started right away, actually. And today's topic is going to be how small sites beat big sites. In general, like maybe ways you can use to beat big sites if there is big sites in your niche. And I think it's, it's a problem that's, you know, especially for review sites, like the stage one type that we're telling people they should build, has been cropping up more and more. For a long time, the kind of like best type keywords and so on were smaller affiliates realms only, And I think bigger brands started to realize how much money there is in these these types of keywords. And, you know, back in the day, if you Googled like a lot of like health type keywords, you know, like best type keywords, like best diet for women, et cetera, you'd get like a leaf strong that would rank for it, but they they wouldn't have any affiliate offer or anything. They didn't really understand what people wanted. But recently, you know, there's been a lot of examples of, of big brands essentially investing in the types of queries that the people on our scale typically go after and that's been a problem that's been cropping up a lot i think for tung for example from cloud living his site on skincare got went down quite a bit because of that so maybe Perrin, you can tell us what happened with big companies coming in
2: yeah so the article i always like to point to when i'm talking about this is a really great article on viper chill It's called How 16 Companies Are Taking Over the SERPs. I highly recommend you go read that. It's at viperchill.com forward slash Google hyphen control. And basically, the thrust of that article is about a huge media company called Hearst Media. If you've never heard about Hearst Media, they are a massive media company and they own huge brands that have online presences, but also lots of offline presences. But there's stuff that you know. So it's like L Magazine, it's Esquire. I forget the other big ones, but they're like really, really big brands and they have tons and tons and tons of sites that are all really authoritative. What scared everybody about Hearst Media is when, I think this was in late 2016. I didn't check before the podcast, so this could be wrong, but that's just, you know, off the top of my head. They started a site called Best Products... Dot .com and it was scary for a couple of reasons. First, it was scary because they were targeting those roundup type keywords that all of us little guys like to go for. So, best weed whacker, best lipstick for women, that sort of thing. And the whole site, especially when they started, it, it's not so much that way now, but the whole site was targeting all of those keywords that we love to go for. So, it was scary because it was just a big company entering the space. It was also scary because they leveraged the massive authority of all of their other properties to build tons of links to that site really, really quickly. And they did it in a way that everybody thought might even get them penalized. So it wasn't just, you know, a link here or there on their sites. Like they weren't, you know, like pointing to a few articles. They were doing site-wide links in all of the footers of all of their sites targeting exact match anchor text and they, I think, have since changed that. But in the article on ViperChill, you can see screenshots <laughs> of the footer that just say like product reviews and stuff. So they put in all of these links across all of their properties. And if you look at their link curve, it's actually ridiculous, like their historic link curve on maybe refs or something. Their links spike overnight and their traffic shoots up from like basically zero for a brand new site, a brand new registered domain up to hundreds of thousands a month. And now they haven't gotten penalized through all of that. And they're getting millions of visits a month and they're ranking for all of these roundup type keywords. So
1: it's very yeah, scary. Ahrefs to says 2.6 million organic visits and we all know Ahrefs underestimates usually. So yeah.
2: Right. And it was really scary to a lot of people. And when this article came out, there was not a huge panic, but definitely a mild panic and everybody was talking about it because there's this fear what if big companies, you know, quote unquote, discover what we do and they just start throwing money and they edge us out of the SERPs? Because Hearst Media is not the only big media company, right? There are other media companies who we are seeing start to do similar things. So one of the most notable ones is like CNET, who is reviewing like basically all tech products, Mag. And lots of similar tech companies are going after all of the roundup type keywords for tech. Oh,
1: PCMag, yes. Yeah, PCMag is crazy. It's a really good case study if you want to be in Ahrefs.
2: And then we also have big sites that are doing things that look like our model. And they're doing it, they're replicating it basically exactly, but they're huge sites with lots of resources. So sites like The Wirecutter or The Sweet Home, which are the same company. Those were huge sites that were sold to to the New York Times for $30 million. We all know that by now. But they seem to be replicating our model exactly just with much, much, much more resources. So this is something that we've seen happen. We've seen some sites seemingly take a dive because of it. And so there's lots of fear. And in our Facebook communities, we see this fear pop up every now and again when people, you know, well, like start a site, they'll get really excited They'll find some keywords and then they'll actually go look at the SERPs and like, okay, hang on. I'm competing against such and such site. Like, is it even worth doing this? So not only is the industry at large feeling a little bit of unease because we're seeing all of these dollars come in, but people as they're starting their sites are looking at these sites, these bigger sites as if they're the competition. So it's a really important topic to discuss. And there's quite a bit of fear, and the market is changing. So before we talk about whether or not it's even possible, maybe you guys can talk about your take on just this shift in the industry as big sites start to come in. Mark, what do you think?
0: I mean, yeah, it's happening. But you know, this article is a couple years old now. Maybe one or two people we know of have impacted this for this reason. I'm not convinced it's just because of this. Personally, have you felt the impact of this? Because I I don't really think I have.
2: I don't necessarily think I have. And that's going to be, you know, spoiler alert, some of the good news of this podcast. I think it's niche dependent. So there seem to be many more large sites going after random type keywords aggressively in, in the tech industry for whatever reason. So like when I was researching this podcast and putting some notes together, there seemed to just be way more tech websites that have way more authority going after like wireless earbuds, wireless keyboards, you know, like all these different keywords that seemed really niche at first. By and large though, even though I see people coming in or big media companies coming in, I don't necessarily see the small guys being edged out. Gail, what do you think?
1: I mean, I do keyword research for like most of our sites. I see, you know, I see more and more of these sites popping up, but like, I mean, personally, it hasn't stopped me from finding keywords every time I have to find keywords and we produce lots and lots of content. So, and I think that's going to be a topic that we'll talk about later. But I think really the sale of the wire cutter kind of started everything, you know? I mean the sale of the wire cutter and bestproducts.com kind of came out around the same time. And then that's when that really that's that's maybe like maybe one year ago, one and a half years ago, something like this. Mm-hmm. I think one and a half year based on the Ahrefs data for bestproducts.com. I see they basically started properly in beginning of 2016. Mm-hmm. So almost two years actually. And yeah, I mean, there is money to be made. So, And I've been saying it for a long time that this industry is going to professionalize with time and that it's going to get harder with time. It's still, like, a lot of people are like, oh my God, it's so hard, et cetera. But I'm sure you look back, like, in 10 years and you'll be like my god it was so easy why didn't I try more things etc in, 2000, <clears throat> in 2009
0: when I first started people were saying that back then uh, and it wasn't true then it's not true now I don't think it's gonna be true in 10 years I think you're right the trend will continue in terms of professionalization as you as you called it but sites will be getting better and better uh, the competition in, in niches will heat up a bit But for many reasons and many of which we'll discuss on this this podcast I don't think there's ever not going to be a space for the little guy.
2: Yeah. And I have a theory on that. So and and this kind of leads us to the transition because like The main question of this whole podcast is like, can small sites compete with big sites? And the answer is yes. And we're going to spend most of our time today telling you how specifically you can beat big sites. But I think my theory on one of the reasons small sites can beat big sites is just that There's not a finite amount of keywords to go for that just exist. And there's never anything new created. Markets are changing all the time. There's different products coming out all the time. There's different things to review. Search trends change all the time. So there's always new space being created in the market. And we can fill that just as well as any of the other ones. So looked up some examples that show small sites beating big sites. And I think it shows it pretty well. It, keep in mind, if you're gonna go Google these keywords yourself, this is as of this recording. And now since these SERPs are being updated on a real-time basis. These are obviously subject to change, but just real quick, if you want to look up some of these, hopefully they're the same when you see this. Here, pup, a site that I used to own is beating akc.org for Pomeranian price. akc.org is one of the biggest dog associations in the world. A site that I use as an example all the time, best crossbow source, is beating Amazon and Walmart for the keyword Barnett Wildcat C5, which is a type of crossbow. I really like that one because it's a quote unquote e-commerce keyword. So it's one of those things where like this tiny little site, best crossbow source should not be competing with Amazon and Walmart for this e-commerce keyword. Like there's no modifier on there, which is what affiliates like to go for, but it is and it's beating it. Drippedcoffee.com, which is a dr 31 site, which is pretty low with the new AH refs DR scale beats bestproducts.com, which is owned by Hearst Media which is a DR74 site at this point for best coffee maker, which is a very competitive keyword. This is one of my favorite ones, (laughs) bestpowerbanks.com with a bunch of hyphens in the URL. DR33 site, it beats gear best, which is a DR82 site for best power bank. And then my last example that I found, drone enthusiast, which is a DR50 site, which used to be really high, but it isn't that high these days, beats the wire cutter itself, which is a dr 79 site for drone review. Obviously, a highly competitive keyword. So yeah, it happens all the time. When I was looking at these examples, I found them in about five minutes. Have you guys seen this sort of thing? Like if you go look at the random SERPs or like if you are doing keyword research and you're looking at your competitors, do you feel like you are only competing with big sites now or are you seeing small sites out there in the wild?
1: Well, I mean one of the main ways through which i find keywords is by reverse engineering small sites so i kind of like find these little pockets of keywords with like that haven't been hit by the the big sites yet but then you know i, I reverse engineer like let's say i find a good keyword so like maybe i don't know i took this example last week so best shower drain and like i'll find i google it and i'll find a low domain rating site ranking for it i'm like oh that's an interesting keyword and i take that url put it in Ahrefs and kind of like find like all the keywords they rank for. And then I kind of Google these keywords and try to identify how hard or easy they would be to rank for. And then when I do Google these keywords, I'd say like there is big sites, but I would say they're they're making up like less than 10% of the population at this point. So it's not, you know, it's something that's definitely started appearing, but I also feel like a couple of big groups have invested in it, but it's not like everyone and their mother is doing it as well at this point. Yeah, know, they, they still haven't realized how much money can be made in that stuff. So, and the big groups tend to have like, you know, a, a dozen URLs maybe, and they're all in very specific verticals. So, you know, when you work within a single niche, there's maybe like four or five of these sites that you're competing with, but you won't find them on every query far from it, you know?
2: So if we were going to ask the question, how do we beat big sites? We have mm-hmm. a few different tactics and we've made some notes here. I think I'm going to let you guys take the first one. We're already talking about keyword research, and I think keyword research is one of the most important or easiest ways we can sort of beat big sites before we even get started actually building. So Gail, why don't you talk a little bit more about that? How how would a small site beat a big site with a good keyword research strategy?
1: I mean, first of all, like don't go head to head with them necessarily. It's like it's like I think is in the art of war. It's like picking your battle is like one of the best ways to win the war, you know. So I think first of all, it's like if a big site is ranking number one, maybe don't go after this keyword because you can find many others. Try to identify sites that do well in your niche and see what's working for them, as I said earlier, and then try to emulate that. And then when you find the stuff that these small sites do well at, usually when you Google these keywords, you find more smaller sites that are kind of like in that niche, and you just start making a big list of people and and look at what they do. I think another interesting thing as well is search volume. So like the big sites, they tend to go for the really big keywords, whereas... And that's something that actually you taught me at some point. Like I used to go for like two, 300 searches per month, but you were like, no, for hip hop, you know what? If there's like 20 searches, I still go for it. And I still make money and so on. I started doing that on Health Ambition and it worked pretty well. And usually, like, you know, when, since we talk about the best tech, so like, you know, for ex- if you go for best perfume, it's probably going to be quite competitive. But if you go best perfume for teenage Girl or something because you 're trying to make a gift, then that's going to be a lot less competitive, and these big sites they tend to not go for these kind of keywords. they tend to just go for best perfume and hope for to rank for all of it. But when you have a more specialized article you kind of that's when you can compete essentially when you have an article that specializes in that sub niche and if you check out submission we do we do that a lot we don't do like we, we tend to write for a lot of variations for a lot of different situations where it's warranted that you, you'd want a different product. You know, you won't buy the same perfume for a teenage girl and your grandma. So it, it's, it makes sense to make two different articles, but most of these big sizes they will not do that. So if you mix that with like looking at small sizes that do well, you write more specialized articles and you, you're you not afraid to go for low search volume because you still make a good return on investment. Together, it's like a good way to to go for keywords. And research, also, the
0: people say. in that dem- demographic. So, if you're a teenager in the perfume example, you're much more likely to click on the result which is targeted yeah. towards you than just yes. a general best perfume, because you know it's it's more relevant to you.
2: Mark, why are these big sites going after almost exclusively these huge keywords and not the small ones? Because
0: there's more money in it at the end of the day. If they're ranking for perfume or best perfume, the volume they're getting is significantly higher, volume of traffic getting significantly higher than any other smaller keywords that we're talking about before. So it's great. They have the resources, they have the, in the case of best products, the authority to go for this, to compete. They have the money to spend on really good content. In many cases, they'll go for it. I mean, that like that's what companies do. They seek out the value and they try and exploit it.
1: Yeah, I would still argue that, okay, there's more volume in that one single keyword, I agree, but in terms of return investment, I'm not sure they make more money, you know, like um, per dollar spent, like revenue per dollar spent. If you think about it, like you can make a small site that has like these very specialized articles that don't necessarily take a lot, like you don't need to have an office, you don't need to have like all this crazy stuff, et cetera, and you can rank for it. So it doesn't take a lot of resources to get these keywords. While these big companies, yeah, they can rank for the big keywords, but they also spend big bucks. So... For every dollar invested, I think it it can be quite comparable, sometimes even better for small sites, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the cost is a huge factor. If you have a big company with like, an office in New York and many levels of middle management, a big legal team and all that kind of stuff, like they can't afford the small wins. Like They need to go for the big yeah. wins. Each employee, in that case, needs to be generating a, a much higher amount of, of income than a solopreneur who's just started a site, for example. It's almost like, to go back to Sun Tzu thing, it's like a different battlefield you're you're fighting mm-hmm. on
2: that's i think one of the key principles in keyword research. When i'm thinking about like how how am i going to beat a, a a big site as a small site, for me a lot of it is just in the realization that these, you know, quote unquote small keywords are still a very good raw dollar amount in my bank account at the end of the day. So with hearpup i was going after basically any keyword i could find that was highly relevant that was a non-zero search volume and it was, you know, after all was said and done with here, put hundreds of thousands of dollars. That doesn't make a huge dent for a major dog company or something. For me, as a solopreneur, it's huge. So there's a little bit of, you know, what ROI means for a big company versus a small company and what the value of a small amount of traffic is versus, you know, the huge amounts a big company might need.
0: Yeah, so it's kind of like it's worth your time to do that, but it's not necessarily worth their time to do that. It's a good point, though, what you said around going for just anything that has any traffic. Just in general, the ROI on this type of content long term is just ridiculous. It's so much higher than, than almost anything else we do. So as long as there's even a smidgen of traffic, it's going to be worth it for us to to go after it. So that's kind of why there's a bit of kind of buffer in there, even with the small keywords.
1: I think that leads literally- yeah. to... And not many people do it, actually. So it's like, then the competition is so low, the, the chance of success is really high, and it kind of makes up for lower traffic as well. You know?
0: Yeah. And the people uh, who yeah. are going for the low keywords, te- the quality of what they're producing tends to be really bad. Oh, bad so yeah. you just need to have a kind of like semi-decent... Article and you're ahead your already. So,
2: right. That's a perfect segue because one of the key ways I feel like I can beat bigger sites as a smaller site is in content. So, it'd be a good experiment, I think, for anybody listening to this podcast to pick one of the keywords that you're going for and find a big media company trying to rank for it and go look at the article that they have produced to do that, because what you'll probably find a lot of the time and what I certainly find when I am looking at big media companies who are competing for my keywords is that they're leaning so heavily on their authority and they seem to be so used to ranking so easily. There's not a lot of effort going into the content. It's their domain authority that is pulling most of the weight. So one of the ways we can beat big companies is in producing really high quality content that's better optimized maybe longer and you know maybe like more personal experience or something that's not just generic content posted on a highly authoritative domain there are exceptions of course so like the wire cutter and the sweet home or sites like outdoor gear lab that are producing like really intense 5 or 10,000 word articles on these keywords, they're out there. But for the most part, when somebody like Hearst Media gets into a niche, it is not really high quality reviews. It's just like a shotgun for the whole niche for every keyword they can find. And then their domain authority carries a big chunk of them. But that's important, I think, because one of the lessons we can learn with content is that even though big companies have more money, they're often not willing to spend as much money per piece of content for these low competition keywords as we are. We're willing to spend as much as it takes to get two or three or 4,000 words, or maybe we sit down ourselves and we spend five hours writing an article or whatever. The big companies often aren't willing to do that. And so even though they have more money, we are devoting more focused resources. And I think that's definitely a way we can win. What do you think about that, Mark? I know you guys have been working a lot on content for like Health Ambition. I mean, you're even behind a little bit on Health Ambition. So is that something you were thinking about when you were-
0: Yeah, so I mean, like the the inherent problem is when you try and scale, you have to standardize everything you're doing in order for it to, to create a process and for it to be able to, well, scale. But as soon as you start to do that, that's when, if you don't have a really set, tight set of processes and editorial controls, that's when content can diminish. And that's when you end up with kind of more average content than, say, the kind we have an authority hacker, which is not the shotgun, as you mentioned, but like the, that's the sniper rifle kind of content. It's really, really good. And like a lot of effort is, goes into one single piece. You can't do that at scale.
1: As you can see by our posting
0: frequency. No, but I mean, in order to do that, you would need, you know, a team of 50 writers and, you know, you have to train them all up and you'd have have to have really good documentation and really good feedback loops and really good systems and shared resources and just all the type of infrastructure which a larger organization needs. And then there's that added cost at that. So, you know, it's a difficult job. And this is why there's not that many companies in the world that have, you know, more than 50, more than 100 employees. It's probably in the, the thousands uh, but, you know, there's millions of small businesses which have five or ten people in them. So,
1: Yeah, I also think it's like what we were talking about, the infrastructure costs. Like, big companies cannot afford to spend that much on piece, on content because they have to pay for their office. They have to pay for the management levels. They have to pay for the company retreat and the, the yearly bonuses, et cetera, from people. And so that's money they don't put in i mean they, they creation, can afford you
0: know? it it's just
1: the threshold
0: for what they because they have that big fixed cost base the threshold before they get a return much higher it's than much higher, it will yeah. be for us you know with a with no office with a remote team just a handful of people and you know that that's that,
1: that's our advantage essentially i think it makes me think of uh, sorry i was just gonna ahead. say
2: i think the inverse of this is that it also costs us much less to create really good content than it costs a big company. So for us to sit down and write or to get say five or 10,000 words on authority hacker, it costs us vastly less than it's going to cost the New York times to create a 10,000 word piece. Not that I'm much cheaper than those writers, but it just with all of the overhead for that company, we can create, you know, quote unquote, Epic content, much cheaper than they can because we just don't have the other business overhead that they do.
0: Yeah. And these organizations, you mentioned the New York Times, you know, they they locate in big, expensive metropolises around the world because there's big talent pools there and they need to have several universities and, you know, uh, that whole ecosystem of talent in order to just sustain themselves, but that also means that they're not able to like leverage cheaper, remote, offshore type people, and therefore, yeah, another reason why their their costs are so so high. There's very few organizations that that are are large, you know, hundred plus people that are completely virtual as well. I think TopTal is, is one of the only ones the that I'm aware of at the moment. IBM tried it, but I think they've kind of gone back on it now. So. Yeah, cost costs a huge, huge issue.
2: Along these same lines for content and creating good content, it's actually kind of related, maybe not completely related, is this idea of relevance. So when we're looking at big media companies going after either the same or similar business models to us, that is to say targeting review and roundup type keywords and trying to earn affiliate revenue, one of the big trends that I'm seeing is that these companies are almost always going broad, right? So if we look at companies like bestproducts.com, it's basically every kind of product you Any can think product. of. Or like <laughs> top10reviews.com, it's like every kind of product you can think of. Stuff like the wire cutter is a little bit more specific. It's like technology, but it's still basically every single category in that vertical
1: and it's not just technology. I mean, they review like and fishing like, rods and like everything. Vacuums like vacuums
2: and stuff. Yeah, so these places are going broad. And I'll go back to one of the examples from earlier because I think it's such a good example of how like a really little guy can beat a big guy. And I think one of the main reasons they're winning is because of relevance. And that's the best power com, And that site is only about power banks, right? They've got long, good content on power banks, but they've got this little micro niche site And I think people undervalue relevance in Google. And when we were doing our article on silos, we found lots of examples of like hyper relevant micro niche sites beating really big sites. And it's because these big sites are so broad. So I think relevance is is another thing we can keep in mind, not only as we're like building out our sites and like creating content, but like, even as we are starting sites, like how niche do I want to go? Because I think one of the ways that you can break into a really competitive space in which there are lots of big media companies, say technology is to maybe not do better content or maybe not only do that and maybe not build more links or something, but just go hyper, hyper relevant, not writing about office supplies, but just writing about power
1: banks So you think that's what people should do? They should just narrow down down their niches? I think it's one strategy.
2: And I think we are actually even seeing this reflected in the big companies. So if you guys have been following the story of The Spruce, which is owned by
1: about.com.
2: They broke off, I think it was like like one of their home subdomains from about.com and turned it into The Spruce. And it's been doing very well. It's getting lots of traffic. What they are planning to do now is break it down even further into different sub-niches. So I think this is being reflected in even the big companies. There obviously is an extreme that you want to avoid. I would not make the website bestpowerbanks.com. But if you're in a highly competitive niche with lots of big players, I think niching down could be a relatively smart idea.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. The about.com is almost a perfect example of like a completely generic site. It's just yeah. you know about stuff. And uh, I think, yeah, I mean, I think part of the, I don't know why that's so funny. That's good branding. <laughs> really though, you know, there's like nothing to it. It's just about some stuff. The Where I was going with this is that who really gets invested in the brand about? Nobody. Because A, it's not relevant, but it's so big and it's so generic and there's no like individual, there's no people, there's no... No one to follow really behind that, which I think is a nice segue into the next section, talking about personal branding and uh, Mm -hmm. and and sort of personality. I think as an entrepreneur starting a site on your own or with a partner or whatever, you have a huge advantage in being able to be the face of that site and really interact with your audience. In marketing speak, they often say that people don't follow brands, people follow people. So. If you're able to essentially be the brand, it's much more attractive for the average reader than about.com because it's just, it's, it's just so generic. Nobody cares about it.
1: I think with a Canadian accent, it would be a lot more attractive though. About <laughs> about.com, maybe. <laughs> but uh, I, no, I think to just get serious. Yeah, the, and I think our speech has changed a lot on like being the face of your website, et cetera. With, like we were here recommending personas not that long ago etc but through our experience with Atari hackers through our experience with other projects or through other people like for example Kevin Espiritu who is an HPro member he has a site on gardening epicgardening.com and he has embraced completely like being the face of his website and so at the beginning it was literally just an affiliate site right but he does actually, he has some interest in doing the gardening stuff and so on. He started doing videos. He started doing podcasts, etc. His podcast now gets almost as many downloads as the Atari Hacker podcast, by the way. So he kind of beats us. But like, through doing that, he also now has a super active Facebook community that, uh, he can drive, where he can drive traffic to his uh, affiliate content. He has a book deal as well. Now it's like he's been contacted by a publisher. and He's going to be publishing a book. Uh, probably beginning of next year or something and overall just the opportunity to build relationships with people by being yourself is is quite incredible and that's something that big companies cannot do so it's probably something that i'd definitely be interested in in us like practicing more and just researching and writing more about this year but it's bigger than we thought it would be and now you can kind of bridge like even if you have like a a faceless affiliate site you can slowly bridge it to be more personal and be more real and it's also when you think about it the the big brands
0: are essentially doing the opposite of that when you have 50 writers who are all trying to adhere to a single set of writer standards or guidelines or you know brand guidelines whatever you're essentially telling them be less like yourself and be more like this document or this this set of instructions um so you you definitely lose like a little bit of edge in terms of how people can associate the the content with you and
2: like how they feel about that and also stuff like that so yeah big yeah. fan big fan what of this approach i, th- I uh, actually have a really good example of this approach i am friends with Susie williams who runs com. i've talked about her in a few blog posts and With her quilting website, she has been the face of the website forever. And really, her blog, she started just because Instagram wasn't enough, right? So she had this like quilting following on Instagram, and people were like, Would you blog about this? And she was like, Yeah, sure. And so she's one of my best friends from college, and we lived in the same neighborhood in Chicago and stuff. So I would go help her with her website. I've moved away, but we still keep in touch. Usually, we don't talk about sites, and I was chatting with her the other day. She, and she was kind of bummed because her Amazon revenue was down like $500. Now, the last time I had talked to Susie, $500 would have been a really significant percentage of her total income. And I was like, okay, well, $500 could be a lot. Like how much is your site making? And she told me the number and I was just like flabbergasted. And I won't tell you how I, much I, it's her <laughs> business, but I I was just like, wow,
1: wow. Okay, I respect it so much.
2: And it was really cool to see because she has grown almost exclusively by leveraging her personal brand. Not only is her site doing really well now, and she's selling her own products and stuff, she's also gotten some really cool deals out of it. So like there's a Swedish sewing machine company who has paid her to be like the face of the company. She's done some paid videos for Craftsy, and she's done, I think, a quilt for toyota that was in a tv commercial none of that stuff would have happened if she hadn't created this sort of mini celebrity by being a personal brand on her site and big companies cannot do that i think maybe one quick example before we move on that i also really like is people like Ty lopez as much as i find him distasteful he
1: my our, favorite yeah,
2: He uh, he's built it, a huge company almost entirely on a personal brand and also people like Tim Ferriss and things like that but I feel like the trend for a lot of authority site builders and you know quote unquote niche site builders was to try to replicate sites that looked like big brand sites and I feel like maybe that was a little dumb I feel like the smarter thing would be to become the true face of your site get into that thing and start interacting more with people
0: yeah, the user engagement thing's really interesting yeah. actually cuz you know when you have uh, again a huge team of writers and then you have different people publishing and different people doing the images and different people doing the website and different people doing the comments it's all a bit disjointed and you never really have a kind of joined up like engagement with your users. A simple example is the Authority Hacker podcast. You know, we We do it every week. There's a comment section. I go through them. I try to answer to as many people as as possible. There's a guy, I think Freddy Cabrera was his name. Like he commented on the last three. I replied every time. I'm saying hello on the podcast. Hi, Freddy. And you can't get that level of kind of interaction if you have, you know, um, 50 writers and you know hundreds of thousands of, of pieces of content on your site it's just too big for for any one person to manage there's like a cognitive limit or something in that in that sense and you know we saw it when we started authority hacker pro and the indeed the courses before that you know the initial people in that community have like real relationships with us you know we've met many of them in real life it's something you just can't achieve when you reach a certain point in scale
1: yeah, it's like, it's not scalable. I think that's the, the takeaway. I think, and that's, um, you know, when I did the podcast with Noah Kagan, he said that, he said, oh, to start up and do well, do things that you cannot scale, you know? And it's things like t- talking to people one-on-one, sending an email to a single person. Like, I mean, I remember when we started Tori Hacker, I think we had like less than a thousand email subscribers. And we emailed them like, oh, how can you help you? And they just replied back with like stuff that they could use help with. And we had time to like talk to each of them. Like if we did that today, like it's like I'd be booked for the end of the year. I I remember many
0: years Um, ago when Jobs was still the CEO of Apple, like once a year or something, he would just go into the support department, pick up a random ticket and just email them back personally, often in a kind of borderline rude or kind of direct way but like they would get an answer from from the ceo and every time he did that it would make in some cases front page news in some websites at least the reason is because that's just so rare in a large organization for anyone high up to to do something like that but in a small organization obviously you can and use that to your advantage as you said
2: yeah i think this is something that Oh, man, I forget the author of this article. We can put it in the show notes. If you're listening, Danny, please put this in the show notes. But the article on 1,000 true fans, which basically says that you don't need to shoot for having tons and tons of fans. You need to shoot for having 1,000 fans who really, really, really like you and who you are really helping solve problems and who will come back over and over again. And that's also something that I don't think you can necessarily scale, especially if you're giving it personal attention.
1: I want to say something though. It's like the um, kind of like the personal relationship with people does change the business model to some extent. Because when you want to create like a review site, the point is that for it to run without you interacting with people, actually, when you build this like little fan army, the business model that is the most interesting is to sell something to these people. And we do that in stage two and three uh, websites. But this kind of approach, It will be necessary in some very competitive niches, but then it means that you need to jump into stage two and three of authority sites much earlier than you would in a niche where you could just rank in Google for review keywords. I would disagree
2: a little bit with that and maybe call examples like, I MK- man, I can never get the letters right, but basically he, he <laughs> would use tech products. And the reason people tune into his channel is because they want his recommendation on what to buy. And I think you can leverage something like that for authority ha- or not authority, hacker, but for affiliate websites. And I think Suzy is actually a good example because people who don't know quilting, but follow Suzy want to know what Suzy uses for quilting
1: cutters or fabric or whatever. It's true, but you need to produce super high quality content. Yeah, and like, I think actually, like it needs to be really amazing and really personal. Like it needs yeah, to be deep. And if you
2: look at our article on the Google quality guidelines, which will also be in the show notes, we talk about how Google says in their quality guidelines for content that you don't have to be like a scientist, but one of the ways you can bring what they call content authority into your work is to add personal experience but yeah you know like it's outside of the reasons a lot or lots of people start affiliate sites which is to be totally passive so it's definitely maybe not ideal for lots of people but it does constitute a way you can beat a big site i think
1: i think it still helps in the sense that it can help you build links um, even if you just want to make an affiliate site, just put your face out there and, and be a bit personal. In a, Like if you're reviewing items, like, I mean, read some of my reviews on Atari Hacker, You know what I'm talking about. I mean, when I reviewed Bustcham, I think that was the first review I wrote. It's like there was essentially a 1,000-word rant on how people are headless chicken building links or something. And like really, really, really personal. But that was actually one of the most popular posts on the site for a long, long time. Because of the amount of personality that was injected into it. So when you're the person that wrote the article, injected this much personality into it, and at the same time reaches out to other webmasters, it gives you a lot more clout. You're the guy on the website, essentially, which is not like being the guy on TV or on the newspaper, but it's good enough. And that allows you to do things like build links to pages where you usually don't build links to, like, you know, review pages and affiliate pages, et cetera, And that really can give you the edge, like this personality thing. So I think even if you considered like you don't really want to do the personality thing and put your face forward too much, just a little bit, especially if there's personality into your content, then you can definitely get link building advantages that develop that passive income some people are looking for.
2: Yeah, let's talk about that because when we look at the data and when we are talking to our friend Tim Sulu from Ahrefs, shout out to Tim, what we see all the time is that one of the most important metrics for like how pages rank in Google is page level links. I saw this when I was doing my big keyword difficulty analysis for Authority Hacker. It's one of the biggest articles we've ever written. It's a little bit dated now, but we looked at tools that came up with keyword difficulty scores that were based on only the authority of the domain, cough, ahrefs, cough, or not cough, ahrefs, cough, but cough, SEM, rush, cough. And we measured them against tools like ahrefs that were looking at the page level links. And we found that the keyword difficulty scores were much more accurate for tools that we're looking at page-level links rather than the authority of the entire domain. So page-level links can help you rank higher in general. Why, Mark, would that be an advantage for a small site instead of a big site? It would seem like it'd be easier for a big sites to build links, but when we're talking about page-level links, why is that an advantage for small sites in particular?
0: Well, I mean, first of all, I don't necessarily think it's easier for big sites to build links. I think it's easier for them to acquire links naturally just because, mentioned earlier, the, the was it Hearst Media or something? You know, when you have lots of other websites which have huge authority and you control them, it's like your own PBN except not a PBN, you know? You can just direct links to bestproducts.com and it's like you have a massive, massive head start. There's that side of things. But really, I don't think too many big brands are building links in the kind of way that many people in Authority Hacker do. You know, yes, they they guest post here and there. But more often than not, I've seen them typically hire agencies to do this. And when they do that, they're obviously concerned about quality. And then they end up spending thousands of dollars per month for hardly any links. Their cost per link is massive. We actually used to work for a big organization, Macy's, the department store in the US, they did exactly that. And I don't really think it, it it kind of worked particularly well for them. The other thing is, if their strategy is around, you know, just acquiring links, or maybe building a few here and there from different home pages or whatever, but just acquiring links naturally, they're not really getting to direct that to the, the places on the site where they specifically want to. But if you're doing it yourself, then and you realize, you know, oh, this page needs more links, it's almost on page one or it's number two or whatever, you can kind of I guess control that at the macro level a bit bit easier.
2: Yeah, I think there's also like a link building scrappiness that small sites can afford that big sites can't necessarily afford and or don't necessarily pay attention to. So if you've got a relatively small site, you're building all the links yourself and you've got maybe a hundred articles published and most of your traffic comes from 10 or 15 articles, which is typical for an authority site. You're going to notice if something drops and you're going to be much more willing to be like, okay, I lost that $300 a month because I dropped from the first position to the sixth position how can I go build some links and then you might run a guest posting campaign or you might get an infographic created and run an infographic campaign. Whereas lots of big sites will just publish a piece of content and never look at it again. Smaller sites, because there's so much more invested in each piece of content and because they're so much more agile when it comes to link building, are much more likely to just keep building links until that article is pushed up to the top of the SERPs. And it's a big advantage. Because big sites either don't or can't, in some cases, afford that sort of link-building scrappiness. And in my view, because page-level links happen to matter so much, that's one of our bigger advantages.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of big organizations were sort of scared off when the first Penguin update... Was it Penguin or Panda? What was the Lynx one? I forgot. Panda was oh the... God, God. Time, yeah. like you, you
1: are kicked out of this podcast right now. <laughs> Go to your room.
0: Yeah.
1: So, so,
0: when Penguin first came out, you know, there's a lot of organizations that had hired SEO companies before, had built links off of random forums and using certain software suddenly realize oh we can't do that it can have a serious long-term impact on our, our business and then the the sort of controls over what kind of link building is okay now is is super tight like they have to be way way more careful than, than a, a small site does because if they mess up their domain if you're big big company like Amazon or Expedia or something like that then it's just like completely catastrophic if you, if you if you mess it up so yeah
1: Yeah I mean uh, big sites nowadays like what they tend to do what I'm seeing more and more is they are buying sites and just redirecting them to their domain and that's the way they're building links which can be and that's how they rely on their domain authority essentially it happened between authority nutrition and health Healthline. lately it's a very good case study if you want to put them in Ahrefs as well and it's like yeah it means that Big sites can acquire authority with money and it's completely fine by Google as long as you buy the entire domain and just redirect it. But it also means that exit opportunities do exist for small time business owners. Like you could literally just be building a site and then just like sell it to a big brand for like a million dollar, two million dollars. Exactly what happened actually to authority nutrition. I think he sold that site for like several million dollars to Healthline. And I think he's going to be there with them for like a year or two or something. But then he's cashed out in a big, big way and built that site in just a few years. So the fact that these big players are getting interested in the area also means that you can have really big paydays because you might be acquired at some point, which is essentially what startups have been doing in Silicon Valley Valley forever and how a lot of people got really rich. So I actually find that part exciting because... There's that world where if you get big, you can acquire other sites. And there's also massive acquisition opportunities ever since, basically ever since Wirecutter was acquired by the New York Times. Yeah. Tens um, of millions of acquisitions are a real thing now, you know?
2: Totally. Taking one step back to talk about the agility. I think we have skipped over a couple sections here that we laid out that feed into this idea of agility when talking about link building. And that's just the speed of being able to... Cover something and the dexterity to be able to keep content fresh. And I think those are kind of the same thing. So, a lot of big sites and big companies in general are highly bureaucratic and slow moving, lumbering machines. Small sites are often much faster when it comes to content production. So, say something crazy happens with Amazon, Amazon apocalypse, they change their fees. We can write about that tomorrow, right? or something happens with SEO, there's a major update. We can publish a podcast on it tomorrow. Bestproducts.com isn't necessarily going to be keeping tabs on everything or refreshing old content. Small sites really can, and so that usually, or that can come out to like a first mover's advantage. And also, you can come out to more valuable single pieces of content in the long term because you can keep refreshing old content, which is a lot easier to do if you only have like 100 or 200 articles published on your site. This doesn't feel maybe as big of an advantage to me. What do you guys think? Does it feel like a big advantage to you?
1: I feel it can be a big advantage. It's also, I mean, it is possible when you're a one-man show to just like jump in and just do things. I've done it quite a bit at the beginning of Authority Hacker, just like, oh, big Google update, you know, be the first one to like publish a podcast, be the first one to do something like this. I'll have a bit of a more in-depth discussion because usually you have the news sites that kind of like cover it the minute it comes out. But they really don't give a lot more information than the public information available. Rather, But like if you're able to give a bit of an expert opinion on things and how things are going to change, et cetera, and if you check these podcasts, there has been a lot of opportunities in which we've done that, like when there was this pop-up update, when there was the Amazon update, when there was all of that. I think it's a great, great way to get on the radar of your audience because your audience, when this kind of stuff happens, they want to know what's happening. And it's usually, despite the fact that there's all these news articles, as I said, they're really not that interesting. Once you've read one, you've read all of them. And this is also a great way to kind of like piggyback right social media. So I would say if you're just just starting out and nobody's reading your site not my favorite way but if you have just a tiny bit of an audience then yes because this audience can like share it around talk about it etc and that's a great way to expand your regular reader's audience so that's what i think
2: let's move on to this idea of like cost now of the three of us mark is the cost and business systems genius So I am probably going to pass that off to Mark because I'm not good at saving money. But as far as cost goes, what do you feel like makes that an advantage for small sites? And what does that look like in practicality?
0: So I mean I think we've already covered it to be honest the cost savings are you you don't have the big office you don't have the infrastructure you don't have the fixed costs you don't have the super high salaries you can be more nimble with you know hiring from cheaper sources you can you know leverage not having an office and doing the whole remote organization in order to get really good people for less than they would perhaps need in a major you know, Western European or American city. So fundamentally, that's the advantage you have. You don't have big legal departments. You don't have expensive finance people to to pay or boards of directors, shareholders to, to contend with. It's just the general nimbleness of being a small entrepreneur.
2: Do you feel like that advantage slips away as you grow? Because we're kind of in a funny spot with lots of our companies where they're getting big enough that we need to spend money on some of that stuff. So maybe you're in a unique position to...
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a the, the unique challenge of, of scaling any company. It's not just an authority site. If you're, you know, a hairdresser or something, you, you face the same challenges when you get past the first sort of handful of employees in the 10s or 20s. And, and that's where you really have to have everything kind of like tight in terms of your your organizational structure even just like simple things like email and file sharing and you know meetings it all has to go well because the the small cracks in the in the process become magnified the more people you you throw into into the mix and once you get past a certain amount which is usually 15 or 20, which is kind of the amount one person can kind of stay on top of at a push. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but it's kind of what one person can can manage at a limit. Once you get to the edge or, or beyond that, then typically the owner will just kind of lose control, which is what happened to us in our, our last company. So yeah, lesson learned. But there's definitely huge advantages you can you can have because you know now we have a full-time designer working for us and that's great. If anyone's looked at any of our websites at all recently.
1: They couldn't um, tell we have a
0: designer. (laughs) We haven't (laughs) haven't launched any of our new new sites. The new Health Ambition uh, redesign coming, and it's so much better. But in the past, we've, we've hired designers here or there to help us out. But we haven't really had someone whose sole focus it has been to make this look amazing. And we have that now because we can, we can now afford to, to do that. Our team's big enough that it warrants it. And yeah, that's, I think, going to be a massive advantage for us. It comes back to content as well, because if your content looks crap, if your site looks untrustworthy, then you may have great words on there. But if the design's terrible, people are still not or a lot, large number of people are still not going to trust you. And to be honest, I think it's amazing that, how much people sort of buy into us and believe in us, given how like really bad. I I just think our design is terrible. Um, So, you know, use that for what it, for what it is as a kind of, you know, it it doesn't have to be amazing is is what I'm trying to say. Really.
2: Yeah. So maybe there's a sliding scale so that like, as you give up some of these advantages of being a quote unquote, little guy, you do gain some advantages of being a bigger player.
0: It's a growth curve. So like if you Mm -hmm. start by yourself uh, or just with a small number of people and then you grow, you, you're still learning all these things as as you grow, and you still remember the early days. If you're a Fortune 500 company with you know thousands of employees, and you're like, okay, now we want to get into this space, this industry, you have nobody in the organization who's been through that, who knows that. You have to hire people to sort of like lead you and give you advice and and that space, and that's expensive. And like tactile, tangible, real world experience of being a, an early stage entrepreneur is is priceless in a way. So, yeah.
2: And lastly, wrap this up. Don't wrap up the whole podcast. I'm going to do that in one second. But we have one more tiny tactical advantage for you. Mark, give us the loaded on this because I don't deal with this much at all. Legal stuff. Big guys spend huge amounts of money on legal. How is that an advantage for small business owners?
0: Well, I mean, everyone needs to take care of themselves from a legal perspective. Like Nobody wants to get sued. We're not sort of saying to skirt the law by any stretch of the imagination. But... Bigger organizations are usually or more often than not targeted than smaller organizations in lawsuits by government agencies such as the FDA. Amazon is super, super careful about you know all its the advice it gives its affiliates, like the wording that you have to have. You can't mention price, like all these things. And they care about it so much more than most other affiliate programs, frankly. And the reason for that is because they are the biggest e-commerce retailer out there. And so if the FDA wants to make a statement, if they want to actually go after someone for infringing on what is quite often than not laws, which are really, really difficult to adhere to fully, like if they want to go after Amazon, they will find something on Amazon. So Amazon isn't just like kind of skirting the law, but they're they're really leaving it a wide berth. And they're they're really... Playing it extra extra safe. Many organizations, many large organizations, have to do that. Uh, not just for uh, against to protect against government agencies, but against you know being sued by other companies. I don't think that many people would or would want to sue a small company uh, just because they don't have that much money. If you win, you you know you barely cover your legal costs. So from that perspective, you can because you don't have to deal with all that stuff. Again, it reduces your cost base. You don't have to go through so many checks as to, to, to what you're doing. That's not to say you, should, you shouldn't, you should but yeah, it's, it's, again, an advantage for being a small guy. All
2: right, guys, let me wrap this up. Long story short, you don't need to be scared of big sites. Yes, you can compete. I'm going to give you a real quick rundown of just the tactics we discussed today. So first of all, keyword research. Go after the small keywords that big companies may not necessarily want to go after because they don't yield the ROI that is necessary to run a big business content. You can spend more resources per piece of content. It can be longer, better and more targeted relevance. You can create much more relevant sites than big companies are typically willing to create speed and agility and freshness. You have the dexterity to go after stuff faster and keep it fresher Personality and personal branding, so you can be the face of your site, which can lead to authority, a more engaged audience, and in some cases, lots of other business opportunities. Costs, as long as your costs are low, uh, your ROI is going to be better than big companies most of the time, at, at least from a percentage standpoint. The real secret sauce, I think out of all of these, probably my favorite tactic, if I was going to pick one that was the most powerful, I would say page-level link building. We are more capable and more willing to build page-level links until something makes money than a big site or a big media company might be. And then lastly, legal stuff. This isn't necessarily something you need to do. You should take care of yourself from a legal standpoint, but it's more about just not having to deal with the incredible headache of legal stuff that big media companies need to deal with. So I would add on to all of that as we wrap this up, just a little bit of theory that we don't need to be scared of the big guys because we need a much, much smaller piece of the market to be independently wealthy and we can work harder for that tiny slice than bigger companies are willing to. Do you guys have anything to add before we wrap it up?
0: Just in case, I forget if we said it at the start, but the show notes for this podcast will be on authorityhacker.com forward slash small hyphen sites. So all the links, everything we mentioned before will will be on there.
1: Yep, that's basically it. That was the best outro of any podcast we've ever done, so I don't think I have anything to add. (laughs) Oh,
0: you you want a good outro? Here's a good outro. So this is actually episode 99 of the Authority (laughs) Hacker podcast. And next week is the big 100 so i think guys what do you think do, should we do something special for it
1: we're gonna do like the best the most ridiculous stuff we've said in the podcast uh, <laughs> over 100 episodes, all that the things we were wrong about that'd be wonderful <laughs> yes like just listen to the predictions episode it's fine <laughs> anyway we'll figure it out but we'll try to do something special next week if we don't we'll still be here thanks for listening guys we'll see you next week bye